Hello, I'm Joe Garrity from the Close Up Foundation, and welcome to Building Bridges. Since 1977, the Close Up Foundation has provided a teacher's program for all educators that brought their students from across the nation to Washington, D.C. for a course on civic engagement and empowerment. Now, in an effort to stay in contact throughout the year, we're offering our Close-Up Teacher Program podcast, Building Bridges. Today's podcast was recorded on October 28, 2020. Today on Building Bridges, we'll be talking about the history of some disputed elections in American history. We'll be focusing on the election of 1800, which ended in a tie in the Electoral College. The election of 1824, which brought to an end the era of good feeling. And the election of 2000, which was ultimately decided by a 5-4 to decision in the Supreme Court. Obviously, there are many other disputed elections in our history, but we selected a few that you may find of interest. Joining us today for this session are Dr. Dan Wallace and Sante Mastriana. We will run these in chronological order. So first up is the election of 1800. Joe, can you set the stage for one of the most controversial elections in American history, featuring two of our most prominent founders? All right. George Washington, what is he most concerned about? And that's the creation of political parties. Yet two of his four original cabinet members play significant roles in the creation of America's first two parties. The Democratic Republicans, led by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and the Federalists, led by Alexander Hamilton and John Adams. It is a fierce and fractious time in our political history, with highly charged debates over the very foundation of self-rule and constitutional government. So John Adams is the incumbent president after winning an extremely nasty campaign in 1796. Thomas Jefferson was his vice president based on being the runner-up in the presidential election. So the very first peaceful transfer of power occurs in Congress Hall in Philadelphia on March 4th, 1797. But it wasn't pretty getting to that inauguration day. What do we have in 1800? We have a rematch between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Now, these gentlemen were great friends that had worked together on the Declaration of Independence and really had been very close friends for decades. But back in the day, these gentlemen did not campaign to be president. They left it up to their henchmen in the newspaper business to fight it out. And very little, if anything, was off limits especially with Mr. Jefferson. So James Callender, who was a notorious newspaper editor for the Richmond Examiner, a Democratic Republican newspaper, and Jefferson and Callender's relationship goes back to 1797, when Jefferson had him dig up dirt on Alexander Hamilton and his affair with Maria Reynolds. So Jefferson, six calendar on John Adams in the Examiner for the election of 1800, But Adams, as most people know, was very faithful to his wife, Abigail, so he had to go in a different direction. So Calendar blasts Adams as mentally deranged, and he wants to crown himself king and was grooming his son, 
John Quincy Adams as the heir apparent. Gallagher called the Adams a hideous hermaphroditical character who was neither the force of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up. So this was not all highbrow stuff by any chance. Yes, they argued about highbrow stuff, but they also got down in the dirt. So dirty campaigning is nothing new. However, things change on Jefferson because he does not give Calendar the postmaster in Richmond. And so Calendar switches to work for a Federalist newspaper. And he, in fact, is the first gentleman to run articles about Mr. Jefferson's relationship with Sally Hemings, which eventually leads to, to six children together. So revenge is a dish best served cold. So what happens during Adams' term in office that drives a wedge between these two men and their respective parties? All right, so 1800, Adams is coming up a very difficult four years as president, with major divisions even within his own party. As the forces within the Federalist Party, known as the Ultras, are pushing for a war with France, including Alexander Hamilton. So Jefferson has been troubled by much that has occurred in the John Adams presidency, and he was convinced that the radicals within the Federalist Party were waging war against what he called the spirit of 1776, the goals of the American people had hoped to attain through the revolution. TJ even called the Federalist rule a reign of witches, insisting that the party was adverse to liberty and was calculated to undermine and demolish the republic. He believed if the Federalists prevailed, they would destroy states and create a national government every bit as oppressive as the one that Great Britain had tried to impose on the colonists before 1776. This rhetoric sound familiar? It's a very apocalyptic rhetoric. We're hearing some of that today, too. So the revolution of 76, Jefferson would later say, had determined the form of America's government. But he believed the election of 1800 would decide its principles. So a famous quote that comes out of Jefferson that is highlighted at the Jefferson Memorial comes from this election. I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man, he wrote. And that was in response to the Alien and Sedition Act. Now, on the other side, you have Alexander Hamilton, who's been George Washington's Secretary of Treasury, believed that the election of 1800 was a contest to save the Union, save the nation from the fangs of Jefferson. Federalists and Republicans agreed on one thing. Whoever won the 1800 presidential election would set America's course to come, perhaps forever. Now, one of the main issues that drove this deep, deep political divide was the aftermath of the French Revolution. Choosing sides between the French and the English tri uh, created tremendous political tension in the 1790s. The French Revolution, which had begun in 1789, but doesn't really run its course until 1815, deeply divided, deeply divides American conservatives, horrified by the violence and social leveling, and applauded England's efforts to stop this French Revolution. Most of the Federalists appeared bent on the alliance with London that would restore ties between America and Britain, which had been severed, as we know, back in 1776. Jeffersonian Republicans, on the other hand, insisted that these radical conservatives 
wanted to turn back the clock to reinstitute much of the British colonial template. So a few weeks before the inauguration of Adams in 1796, France had engaged in an all-consuming struggle with England for world domination. The French decreed that they would not permit any American trade with Great Britain. Their navy soon swept American ships from the seas, idling port city workers, and plunging the economy into a depression. When Adams sought to negotiate the settlement, Paris blew off his envoy. So Adams hoped to avoid war, but he found himself riding this whirlwind. The most extreme Federalists, known as Ultras, capitalized on the passions unleashed in this crisis and scored big political victories in the off-year elections of 1798, taking charge of both the party and Congress. They created a provisional army and pressured Adams into putting Hamilton in charge. They passed heavy taxes on to pay for the army, with Federalist sympathizers in the press saying that traitors must be silent. They went on to enact the Alien and Sedition Act, which provided jail terms and exorbitant fines for anyone who uttered or published anything false, scandalous, or malicious against the United States government or its officials. While the Federalists defended the Sedition Act as a necessity in the midst of this grave national crisis, Jefferson and his followers saw it as silencing the Democratic Republicans, a violation of the Bill of Rights. The Sedition Act, Jefferson contended, proved there was no step, however atrocious, that the ultras would not take. Jefferson had felt that the ultras might overreach. So by 1799, Adams himself had arrived at the same conclusion. But Adams, too, came to suspect that Hamilton and the ultras were determined to precipitate a crisis with France. Their motivation, perhaps, had been to get Adams to secure an alliance with Great Britain and accept the ultras program in Congress. So we're at this moment where this nation is greatly divided. Politically, personally, I, I have to be honest with you, Joe. I mean, I, I know we're looking at what happens now with the present president, with tweets and what newspapers say and the rest. But again, the language back then when the newspaper is just outstanding <laughs> yeah. and it's just so flowery and romantic way to say it. But again, we're at this point now where the nation is really uh, bitterly divided. And as you said, it can change the course history because we're a new nation. Yeah. We're very young and we don't know what we're maneuvering through. So with a bitterly divided country in, in, the, in the divided war, each major party supporting different world powers the Federalists supporting Great Britain and the Democratic Republicans supporting the French. How does the election play out? Oh, it is a bipartisan battle. And it does go to show that things never change in American democracy. We always think it's, it's worse than ever before. Yes. But when you look at it, yes, there are very important issues like there are today. And yes, there are a lot of, you know, not so important issues, personal slights and, and, and insults uh, that really relate very much from 1800 to the current day. The manner which the founders had laid out, this is the problem, is that, yes, it's a bitterly divided election, mm -hmm. but the manner which the founders had laid out for electing presidents was not ideal for a bitterly divided country. As, you know, Washington didn't expect there to be different parties, and that's sort of how they laid out the presidential election. 
So since each party nominated two candidates for the presidency with the idea that one would be the vice president by getting one less vote, the Federalists followed that in 1800 as John Jay receives one vote, giving Charles Pinckney one less vote than John Adams. But the Democratic Republicans did not have one person not vote for Burr. So Burr and Jefferson each had 73 votes. The Federalists are not big fans of Thomas Jefferson, so they saw this as an opportunity to embarrass him. And it really created quite a constitutional crisis. So just to give you the lay of the land, in those days you had 16 states, 11 of the 16, the state legislatures would pick all the electors, and the other ones would be divided by qualified voters, white male property ownings, and taxpayers in states. So some are winner take all and some are divided among districts. On February 11th, 1801, the House met to decide the election. To win, Jefferson would need nine of the 16 votes. Although confident, Jefferson had also written the defects of our Constitution under the circumstance, like the present, appear very great. So Jefferson is already seeing the problem with the Electoral College. Right which we still have problems with to this day. Yes. It's just interesting how we're so committed to it a couple of centuries on. Very first ballot, Jefferson won eight delegations. Burr won six, and two states, Vermont and Maryland, were tied, which sent the House to a second ballot, a third ballot, a fourth ballot, and by nightfall, they were still voting. Both sides refusing to budge. If our opponents will not take Burr, the Federalist Roger Griswold of Connecticut wrote, they shall take nobody. So they are really at a logjam. Now, the House winds up casting 36 ballots over seven days before it comes to a decision. And what happens is James Bayard of Maryland, who may have been working in cahoots with a Federalist, Alexander Hamilton of New York, led a few Federalist delegates from Maryland and Vermont to change their vote to abstain. So that tipped their states from Burr to Jefferson. So Jefferson winds up with 10 votes to four for Burr, and two states were tied, Delaware and South Carolina. So Jefferson has finally won the presidency. This is the most interesting part. What do we see coming out of that election? Yet, in the end... Jefferson does wind up adapting most of Mr. Hamilton's financial plan and many of the other Federalist ideas, which may have been the result of a compromise between Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Hamilton in exchange for his support during the election. And Jefferson allows many Federalist appointments to remain in their positions of power after he takes over the presidency. A lot of Federalists are allowed to keep their positions in government after the election of 1800. And you have Thomas Jefferson in his inaugural address. He says, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. He wrote, we have called by different names, brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists, which is a slightly different tone than he was hitting during the campaign of 1800. So, We don't know for sure if a deal was cut between Hamilton and Jefferson, 
but this may have been the second great compromise between these two gentlemen. It certainly looks like it was. You are listening to Building Bridges. In the United States as divided partisan as we see it today, it's hard to imagine a time when that division was less pronounced, let alone a time when it didn't exist. So Dan, could you tell me about the so-called era of good feelings? I'd be glad to, and I found it amazing, um, of 1824. For most of our audience, I predict they haven't learned much about that nation actually had one major political party. Mm -hmm. I know Joe has already referenced that particular party, which is the, um, the Democrat-Republican Party. Um, so this is technically the same party yeah, from the other election. From, right, from the other election, technically the same party. Um, and I apologize first to our audience because, again, there were so many layers to this and so much, and Joe's hit on part of it, that I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about it. But again, it's worth the time to research. But the Democratic-Republican Party was a single party started in the 1790s and became a dominant party starting in 1800 to 1824. It was started by Thomas Jefferson, which I know Joey spoke about, and James Monroe, in um, opposition of the Federalist Party, which was connected with Alexander Hamilton and John Adams. Some of the big differences, again, between the parties was that Jefferson and Monroe believed in state rights, limited centralized government, and more voter rights for a larger population of white male landowners. Because, again, it depended on how much land you actually own in order to vote, and they felt they wanted to have more people. President James Monroe believed in having one major party, and with the War of 1812, uniting the nation and winning of the war, Benjamin Russell, in a Boston Federalist newspaper, coined the phrase on July 12th of 1817, the era of good feelings. So this is a phrase that they used at the time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he was one who actually coined it when Monroe was off on a goodwill tour, because again, you have a nation who's, who is now united, they have not only fought this war, people still have in the back of their mind that the Capitol building was burnt by the British mm -hmm. and burnt down. And the fact that Moreau wasn't just a president who escaped, he was out there fighting with the troops. Yeah. So Moreau was this great hero. We have a nation's divided, and again, we've defeated Great Britain. So that's why it was coined the era of good feeling. And again, one political party, that Democrat-Republican party, so you don't have a nation that's really divided. Mm -hmm. There may be you know, some issues inside. But there were cracks underneath this period of good feelings. There were, there were those in a party such as New York politician and later eighth president of the United States, Martin Van Buren, that felt that the party was getting away from the established principles of states' rights. And there needed to be more uh, democratization in politics by embracing mass public opinion and not influenced by the few. Van Buren was key in creating a second major party starting at a time, which is a new Democratic Party. President Monroe also was going to run for re-election, declined to run for a third term due to health issues and a major financial dispute with the federal government on payment as president and what possessions he owned in that White House, which leads us to the election of 1824. All right. I always find it interesting because we think about this two-term president thing as being this noble tradition. And then you go and find out it's like, well, the circumstances just didn't line up. So they yes. wound up. Yeah. Running. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. Uh, but anyway, so in a one-party system, it might seem a little bit counterintuitive mm -hmm. that there would even be a competition for the presidency. Right. So how did that pan out? Well, in 1824, what happened, because you had these cracks underneath the party, you had four candidates. John Quincy Adams, who was the Secretary of State for Massachusetts and the son of John Adams. 
Henry Clay, who is a House Speaker from Kentucky, Andrew Jackson, Senator for Tennessee. And if anybody remembers, you always will see in the White House, a lot of times when the president makes a speech, a portrait of mm -hmm. Andrew Jackson. That is his hero. Um, general in the War of 1812 and known for the Battle of New Orleans, where he actually, you know, he was he was actually a great soldier before that time, but he really made his bones in the Battle of New Orleans and lay the first Seminole War. And William H. Crawford, which I know people all know a lot about, not really, <laughs> <laughs> was the Secretary of Tre uh, Treasury for Virginia. They also were two other candidates who actually withdrew early. John C. Calhoun, who was the Secretary of War, and Smith Thompson, the Secretary of the Navy. So it proved to be, if you take the four candidates, add the two more and say six, it proved that the party was divided. Yeah. So all the things that Joe spoke about, those tensions between Jefferson and Hamilton and the rest, it was still there. The, but the Federalists actually died out because of this era of good feeling. So due to having a single party was something called Congressional Caucus, nicknamed King Caucus. I love these terms. <laughs> that nominated a candidate. And William H. Crawford got the nomination. But a few delegates only attended that particular caucus and received large criticism because it wasn't democratic. If you've got a few people attending it, how can you have this? Added, Crawford wasn't there anybody that re anybody really knew about. It was Adams, of course, and Jackson. Jackson's the great general and the hero. Adams is the, is the son of John Adams. Mm -hmm. These are the most popular candidates. So that became a disaster. So thus they had to have a true election. The election of 1824 was the first that had a large majority of electors chosen by voters. That was the major change instead of appointment by state legislators. Mm -hmm. Also, unlike the modern political era, the candidates had advocates who spoke on their behalf, and they didn't go out there personally campaigning. That turned out the vote. So here was the results. John Quincy Adams had 84 electoral votes and 108,740 popular votes. Andrew Jackson, 99 electoral votes and 153,544 popular votes. Henry Clay had 30, excuse me, yeah, had, no, yeah, 32 uh, electoral votes and 47,531 popular votes. And William H. Crawford had 41 electoral votes and 40,856 popular votes. So your two top candidates really are uh, John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. You know, it's interesting looking at those numbers because obviously the electoral votes are different now. But yes. how small those popular vote numbers are, yeah. but, you know, because not as many people could vote. No. Uh, but it's interesting that we think about popular vote in terms of millions. And at this time, they're dealing with 150,000 right. is the majority yes. for the plurality. Rather. Right. So, again, you only be white male and on land. So it wasn't every white male. And so, yes, so you limit the amount. But you're right. And no candidate, of course, when you look at the numbers, received a majority. Thus, under the 12th Amendment, the House of Representatives would pick the winner among the top three candidates. Clay was out. Clay had the least amount. But he still played a major role because he was, I remind you again what his title was, he was the Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. Added, Crawford was ill, even though he was still in the race, but he was so it was down really to Adams versus Jackson. It's also an interesting thing to comment on is how different of a time, and I guess not so different, uh, but this idea that illness keeps felling these candidates yes. when pursuing their political goals. Um, <laughs> and it, yeah, I mean, it really even get back to the writing declaration, independence, all the rest. Yes, there was always a delegate somebody there that was important, but mm -hmm. illness was the one that already suffered during that time. So it's interesting when you get into those notes, yes. Yeah. All right, so this is kind of building on this theme of parallels. Uh, it's kind of an interesting parallel to a scenario that 
some are speculating could play out in 2020, and that's a contingent election. So yes. it's not where it would be a direct tie in electoral vote. Mm -hmm. It's that nobody gets a majority. Nobody pushes over the 270 hill. Um, so a contingent election, uh, but that would also still go to Congress. But the thing with these, the congressional presidential election, if we want to call it that, it doesn't always align with the popular vote because it works on delegations. So if your state happens to have more Republican uh, Congress people, then you might wind up being a Republican vote, even if that state voted Democratic in the right. actual election. Yes. Um, so like any Congress, I imagine that in 1824, there was probably some deal making involved. I love this part. This is, being a political geek, this is the part I love. So it got down to exactly there was backroom politics being played. So Andrew Jackson, for the most part, stayed out of swaying members for votes. Jackson didn't feel it was right for him to do that, didn't do it. Adams was brilliant, brilliant. And I, and I say that because he knew he had to personally go after the votes, and that's what he did. This set up a private meeting between Adams and Speaker Clay. Now, this doesn't look good, but let's go further with it. On February 9th, 1825, Adams was elected president by the House of Representatives on the first ballot. 13 states to seven, 13 states for Adams, seven states for Jackson. Crawford only received four. But members such as the Kentucky delegation who were given, this is to your point, Sante, given direction by their state legislators to support Jackson went to Adams. And it came to find out they were swayed by Clay. What created a greater outrage is that the once elected Clay was appointed Secretary of State as soon as Adams won. So Jackson supports supporters denounced this and called it the corrupt bargain. Fair. But again, <laughs> you're the speaker. Speaker has a tremendous amount of power. The bottom line is that what you want to politics. Uh, Tip O'Neill's always said everything is based on local politics. Everything's local politics, local. And the bottom line is what Clay was able to give them was what can you bring back home to your constituents sure. to keep you in power. The results was Andrew Jackson supporters, which you will look at, which becomes will become the backbone of the Van Buren Democratic Party. And I named it the Van Buren Democratic Party because he's the one who's really designing it. In a challenge at his reelection in, in in 1824, he will win. Adams' support will turn the Democrat-Republican Party into the anti-Jackson Party, renamed the National Republican Party. So now you start to set it up. And this is what, I want to add one thing to what Van Buren believed in, and I, I think Van Buren was correct about it. His fear was that when you have that one-party system, you're voting on personality. Mm. When you have the two parties, and and let's be honest, in modern-day politics, it does come down to personality. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think much has changed. Right. <laughs> but the platform, if you're running in a particular party, there is a platform to that party and what that party believes. Mm. And you're right. In modern politics, it does get down to, to uh, personality, and a lot of times people don't even read the platform or mm -hmm. follow the platform at all. But that's what the belief was, that you should be running by the platform of your party. But I also think it's interesting, just to kind of build on what you're talking about, is that we, a lot of what you're talking about sounds like back in 1824, they're having this kind of, maybe not a crisis, but a question around ideas of populism. Yes. You know, how do we make this more responsive, more democratic, which yes. is a debate that we... I don't know if we ever stopped having, but we're certainly having it even more heightened this cycle, I would right. say. And so just to add to that point, and you're right, I think what we do wrong sometimes, we got to look at is where these these small sparks actually start. Mm -hmm. So even though, yes, it's still white males who own land, 
but they're still saying, you know what, we are, we, we don't want, some of the people are saying that we don't want the situation where it's very few to have a tremendous amount of influence, you have to open up to more. Mm -hmm. And that starts that spark. And then, and then it takes off. It takes time to take off, but you're right, it's the expansion of getting more votes. And Jackson and his winning, that was the, you know, the whole imagery of when he had his inauguration, people are getting, what was it, um, it was so crowded in the White House, they were hanging out the windows, all the rest going on. Mm -hmm. But Jackson represented that frontiersman, but he also represented for a lot of people, the people. Mm -hmm. He was the most popular person it was, and that's what, and in fact, by Jackson losing, I think it did well for Jackson because Jackson really, uh, makes his makes his claim for the presidency almost like what a year after he loses. He's working on his campaign already, but his imagery in the newspaper and the rest is that he is of all people, and that's what the populism and, and and what he really represents compared to Adams, who represents that family that you know is really more high on the hill mm -hmm. um, and ha and and that does represent the common person. So you're right, that starts with, and I think Jackson. One of the things that Jackson does represent is that populism. You are listening to Building Bridges. Okay, we're going to move now way up in time, up to the election of 2000. Um, and if you're of a certain age, you really remember the election of 2000. So President Trump has already suggested that the 2020 election will be resolved in the courts. Um, for many, this harkens back to this famous or infamous election of 2000. And... and you know, maybe brings a little pain to your belly, <laughs> a little agita, um, but and all the turmoil that surrounded the Florida recount. Um, one of the things that I remember is the is the Brooks Brothers riot that occurs during the uh, the, the process of recounting the votes in South Florida. So, Sante, could you give us a little bit of how messy this process was? I will endeavor to. All right, so. Even mentioning, kind of as you alluded to, the 2000 election to set people's teeth on edge, um, because for many it represents some of the worst elements of politics coming to a head. So that includes things like voter suppression, suspicions of corruption, media sensationalism, arcane election rules, court procedures, the list goes on. And I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, but just for about anyone who's alive at the time, including yours truly, the tender age of nine, uh, it is nevertheless burned into their memory. And I do mean that even as a nine-year-old, I still remember this. Um, so yes, it was yet another election in which the Electoral College winner failed to win the popular vote. Uh, also kudos to the 20th century for avoiding that problem entirely. But as soon as we head into the 21st century, uh, we're starting off on kind of a sour note. Um, but beyond this whole popular versus electoral vote thing, it, it's really an election that comes down to one state, and that state is Florida. Um, the 2000 election occupies a particularly ignoble place in our electoral history in the popular mindset, uh, but it's also the genesis of this acute anxiety that political strategists and candidates still feel when it comes to the state of Florida itself. Um, the 2000 election was something of a watershed moment. Uh, being the year 2000, it took on almost a superstitious significance, much like the year itself. Uh, with the 9-11 attacks less than a year away, the year 2000 seems almost innocuous in retrospect. Um, however, in the popular mindset at the time, the year 2000 really felt like it was the beginning of the future. Um, I mean, all the numbers changed in the year. It was a new millennium. 
Many people even started to think that the year would begin with an apocalypse, yes. that the Y2K computer bug was going to launch all of the world's nuclear missiles. I, I should note that most people didn't really take that seriously. Um, but regardless, despite all of the pomp and circumstance, by far the most resonant event of the year in most people's minds ultimately was the presidential election. So the election was between sitting Vice President Al Gore and the governor of Texas, George W. Bush. Uh, in a way, the election represented a referendum on the legacy of Democrats and Republicans alike. If Al Gore won, it would represent a continuation of the Democratic Party that had been revitalized by the Clinton administration, the so-called third-way Democrats, who tried to be the party for moderates and centrists. Whereas if Bush won, it would almost be like a mea culpa for rejecting his father's reelection in 1992 and would represent a return to conservatism. As it turns out, given these options, the country wasn't so sure where it wanted to go. So these were mainline parties. Um, I'm just thinking a Trump supporter would say, this is the swamp. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> From both parties, the people of power coming together to fight it out. Um, one of the things when you talk about this election, I just always remember the voice of Tim Russert, uh, who was a giant uh, meet the press mm -hmm. moderator for, for a couple of decades or at least more than a decade. And he just broke it all down. It's Florida, Florida, Florida. Yeah. And he kept as we were li listening on election night. Now, one of the ironies is that Florida is called pretty early initially, yeah. uh, early in the evening. So could you just tell us, fill us in on just how that all unfolds on election night? What, you know, how did the race come up and how did they, the votes all get counted? And Yeah, so it should be noted that people who were following the election, it wasn't necessarily a surprise that the election itself was close. Right. Nobody necessarily knew it would become this kind of acutely close problem, right. um, but it was extremely close throughout the campaign. Um, and by election night, this was really reflected in those results. So many states had margins of only a few hundred voters, uh, making the difference between Bush or Gore win. And that's all it really takes um, and in some ways, it's kind of similar to what happened in 2016, where you have these razor thin margins in these states that wind up going for um, Republican or, or Democratic candidate. But the trouble really started as the night wore on. And it was becoming clear that no one was going to emerge with a clear majority of electoral votes before the evening was over. So Bush was sitting at 246 votes and Gore at 250. Both of them are shy of the 270 needed to win. What's more, Oregon and Wisconsin were also still outstanding. So really when we get into the thick of things, there's Oregon, Wisconsin, and Florida, we're not sure about. Um, but Oregon and Wisconsin only have a combined total of 18 electoral votes. So even if either candidate won both, it just wouldn't be enough to win the majority of the electoral votes. So it became clear that Florida with 25 electoral votes, which would be enough for either candidate to reach 270, regardless of what happened with Oregon and Wisconsin, that Florida would then be the deciding factor. Which is never a good thing in electoral <laughs> politics. <Yeah. laughs> um, so Florida becomes incredibly close. You, you get this announcement early, and um, and our, I remember I went to bed. You know, I'm a, I was a little older than nine, <laughs> but, but I can relate, Sante, because I was seven for the '68 election. There you go. And I still remember <laughs> almost everything about that election. So. Political nerds kind of flock together, I guess. But, um, but I, you know, normally I stay up late, but they had called the election because with Florida going, it was going to be Gore. And that's 
woke up the next morning like it was, wow, a stunned surprise. Um, and, and found out that, that Bush had won. And then it continues from there. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the confusion and what happens as it plays out in Florida. Yeah, so uh, being there at the time, I also went to bed. Uh, I was in Disney World, so I had a big day ahead of me and had to go to sleep. Um, but I also remember kind of distinctly that it, the election seemed like it was over. Um, and then woke up in the morning and I saw newspapers around and apparently that wasn't the case. But uh, the, the problem really starts to come into focus at around 8 p.m. Central Time. So this is when the polls in the Florida panhandle. So most of Florida is done ahead of the panhandle, um, but the polls in the Florida panhandle were due to close. So then every major network, and I mean every major network, ABC, NBC, all the major networks across the board announced a Gore victory in Florida based on exit polling. Uh, so for those who don't know, exit polling is when you question people who have just left the polls after they have voted about their choices, which, you know, there's a logic there. Um, we now have a great appreciation for how this kind of polling can be informative, but not definitive. Uh, this election being the reason why we had to think of that over again. But at the time, the networks were willing to make a call based on just those exit polls. Yet, when the votes actually started being tallied, Bush had pulled ahead to such an extent that by 10 p.m. the major networks retracted their call and they had to move Florida back into the undecided column. Then, with the votes still outstanding at 2.30 a.m., Bush picked up a 100,000 vote lead. So that led many of these major networks to declare him the winner of Florida and therefore the winner of the presidential election. But still not learning their lesson, uh, the call became much less clear in the small hours of the morning as these votes from the highly democratic Broward, Miami-Dade, Palm Beach counties, so this is southern Florida, start to come in. Uh, and they severely eat into Bush's lead. So by 4.30 in the morning, at this point, very few people are possibly awake to watch this, although I'm sure there were many. Um, Bush's lead had dropped from that 100,000 votes to just 2,000. Complicating everything even more was that Gore, he accepted the media's revised call, so when they decided to then give it to Bush. But he had only done that privately, so he had conceded to Bush through a private call, but his advisors implored him not to do so publicly. They were still holding out hope. So with this margin narrowing by the minute, Gore then retracted his concession entirely. So finally, the voting was completed by the next day, and Bush only had a 300, 300, not 1,000, 300 vote lead in Florida, a state of millions. So this triggers an automatic recount. Uh, the recount process would fall squarely under the authority of the Florida Secretary of State by the name of Katherine Harris. Katherine Harris was a Republican who also had co-chaired Bush's Florida campaign. <laughs> so you have his brother as governor, mm -hmm. and you have his campaign chair. Everything's as, above board here. Yeah. <laughs> no, no possible problem. It, it, it smells. And the one thing I would add that I have seen in um, you know, studying this over the years was that Fox News led the way on calling it for Bush in, mm. in, in the early morning hours. Right. And the other networks, because they're so afraid of being caught in a scoop, kind of got caught up in that momentum and copycatted and wound up all calling it for, for, um, for Governor Bush.
are listening to Building Bridges. In this environment, how does the recount go? So initially, Catherine Harris, Secretary of State, she said that she would reject any recount totals not submitted to her office by 5 p.m. on November 14th. So that's a week after Election Day. Uh, this in and of itself is not such an unusual thing. Um, but Gore requests a hand recount because the margin is so narrow. So he requested a hand recount so he could get the most accurate total possible. That drastically slows down the process. They can't just run the cards again and see what, what the numbers come out. They want to have people go in, count these things by hand. So this leads to the Florida Supreme Court granting an extension to the recount deadline to November 26th. What this means for the American people is that the earliest that they would know for sure who the next president was, was three weeks after election day. And this is something that a lot of people are mm. thinking could potentially be repeated this yeah. cycle. So during this recount process, which is fraught with both valid and bad faith complications, uh, it's when we start hearing about hanging chads and pregnant chads and swinging chads. And this wasn't a lively bunch of guys named Chad in Florida. Uh, <laughs> instead, this is referring to the style of Florida's punch card ballots. So as a voter, you would punch out sections in the ballot, which would then be fed into a scanning machine. It's kind of like an old school, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, what you call it, standardized test, right? Yeah. So it goes into the machine. However, the punchable parts of the ballots that were called chads were extremely flimsy. And so that led to some ballots having extra punches or certain punches not being completely clean. So when the machine encounters these errors, it would simply not read the ballot. It just nullified those votes. And this is why the hand recount produced a significantly different total than the voting machines. I don't know if you all remember this nightmare about Chad's. Oh, yeah. It was in the news all the time. <laughs> everybody was discussing the fact that it was most first place. You had the senior population of Florida that was playing about the fact they couldn't quite see what the candidates mm -hmm. were and what they were punching, what was going on. We said it made no sense. Number two, why would you have an archaic system of punching out holes? And the fact that that was the biggest joke all around was these hanging, like you said, pregnant Chad's, mm -hmm. hanging Chad's, all the rest. So it was absolutely ridiculous. The other thing I wanted to go back on was I know there was a big push of number one, if your brother is the governor of the state, and then you have the, the you know, and, and the same thing with Harris being connected with the family, then just have an independent commission. So how does this wind up being resolved? Sure. Um, so disputes over Chad's and other contentions during the recount process, this leads to a lot of counties just halting their recount entirely. They're, they're fed up with it. And this is kind of an interesting thing to note. There's a lot of anxiety, it seems to be, in the United States around this idea that we have to know who the president is as soon as the election yes. happens. Uh, that's not actually standard throughout the world. I mean, if you ever look into, it's interesting, if you look into India's process, I mean, it goes on weeks and weeks and weeks just because of the, the numbers they're talking about. But it is an interesting thing that the same argument is being made now, which is that people are kind of making arguments in court of, well, we have to know who the president is right away. And it begs the question, why? But, you know, we'll see how that all pans out. But anyway, going back to 2000, so we have counties that are just, you know what, this is too much. We can't get it right. We're just going to give up on this recount entirely. We're going to submit our original result, and that's what it's going to be. Other counties, though, wound up submitting their totals after that 5 p.m. deadline. So that led to Catherine Harris nullifying those results. Mm -hmm. By the end of all of this, the end of this whole process, the certified vote, so this is the state approved, Catherine Harris is saying this is what the vote total is, gives Bush an edge of 537 votes. Again, I want to say 537, not 537,000, 537 people. So your vote counts. Right. Um, but an edge of 537 votes, which Gore immediately challenges. 
Uh, initially, the Florida Supreme Court, who seemed to have been kind of on Gore's side in this sort of thing, or at least on the side of counting votes, uh, ruled in Gore's favor, and they demanded a recount of over 70,000 votes. However, the U.S. Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, ultimately overruled this decision in a final 5-4 vote, so right on those margins, which ends the recount entirely and effectively makes Bush the winner in Florida and therefore the next president. This decision in particular was embroiled in some even greater controversy as it was revealed later on that uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor had expressed a desire to retire, but was also reluctant to do so under a Democratic president. And in light of that statement, when you have a 5-4 vote that essentially decided whether or not Bush or Gore, the Democrat versus the Republican, would win the election, it's a little specious. Well, I'll just put it that way. But anyway, ultimately, Al Gore won the popular vote nationally with 48.38%, which is not fantastic, um, and garnered 266 electoral votes. Bush lost the popular vote with 47.87%, that's a margin of less than 500,000 voters nationally, but won the Electoral College with 271, so one more than the minimum, right. which made it the closest margin of Electoral College victory in the past 140 years. And there have been news organizations that have went back into that and, yes. and actually calculated and said that Gore wound up with more votes than Bush, if they had done the entire state. Yep. Now, Bush's pro uh, Gore's problem was, why did he only insist on a recount on those four counties? Mm -hmm. Obviously, he knew that would help him the most. But you just have to wonder, if he had initially said, I want a recount of the entire mm -hmm. state, because the Supreme Court rules on equal protection under the law, yeah. which is ironic, because the five that ruled that rarely used equal protection under the law and, and even said, this is not a precedent. Mm -hmm. This is just for this one case. Yeah. But some have argued, and I know there were those who argued with Gore that time that she did the whole state, some would argue that Gore didn't want to bring a country into that. He didn't, he, there was still a split in the, uh, in the country politically. Um, and so he felt that he didn't want to drag the country through a longer process than need be. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of people felt that's what Gore's decision was in itself. So I remember that one too. But yeah, yeah you're right. It should have been, if you're doing a recount, I've always felt that way too. It should have been the whole state. Right. Um, and I think you do see about. that people are now more reticent to do this kind of county by county style. Yeah. I think it's just, if we're going to do a recount, let's just do the whole thing. Just do the whole thing. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, you said that this, they specifically said this is not supposed to be a precedent. Right. And yet to this day, virtually every Supreme Court justice who has gone through the confirmation process has been asked, what is your opinion on the Gore v. Bush decision of 2000? And every single one of them will give some answer that's like, well, I'd have to consider the facts. Yes. It wasn't really something I, I would want to rule on without doing that. They, they never want to say no. it was the wrong decision or the right decision. They try to avoid it at all costs. But in this particular election, having just confirmed a new Supreme Court justice with Amy Coney Barrett, that question is now at the forefront of people's minds because of how much speculation there has been that Maybe not in this exact form, but a key election decision could come before the Supreme Court in this cycle. Thank you for joining us on Building Bridges. I want to thank Dr. Dan Wallace and Sante Mastriano for joining us today. As always, I'm Joe Garrity, the host of Building Bridges, and a special thanks to our editor, Daniel Pineda, 
and David Moran for our original theme music. This has been Building Bridges, a close-up teacher program production, and thank you for listening.